You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is a watershed moment for the Catholic Church. A grand jury investigation in Pennsylvania has brought more attention to decades of inconceivable abuse. Meanwhile, a high-ranking church official has called on the Pope to resign, saying he covered up sexual abuse allegations. How is this playing out among Catholics in Colorado? Tomorrow, we'll hear from a local survivors group. Today, the church's perspective. The archbishop here, Samuel Aquila, wrote a letter in support of an inquiry into the latest accusations. Aquila says that should include a lay commission investigation. We asked Aquila to join us. The archdiocese instead provided its vicar general, Father Randy Dollins. Father Dollins, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell us more about the Denver Archbishop's letter, his thinking behind it. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people in the church, rightfully so, who are saying these seem like some pretty serious accusations, and we want to know what's our archbishop going to do, what are the bishops going to do, what's a response. And so luckily, the executive committee of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops made a pretty strong statement, and the the bishop kind of just said, I agree with them that a thorough investigation with appropriate authority and appropriate autonomy should be conducted because we want answers that are conclusive uh, and based on evidence to these allegations that have been presented. Members of the Survivors Network for Those Abused by Priests, SNAP, have called for every state's attorney general to investigate. And I'll, I'll say that Colorado's AG, Cynthia Kaufman, has said that her office has only limited jurisdiction, uh, that they're taking a close look at what role they might play. But Kaufman sent us a statement saying, the Catholic Church has proven itself incapable of safeguarding the vulnerable in its flock from sexual assault. And a lay commission of practicing Catholics is exactly the kind of insular thinking that has protected pedophiles and predators. Uh, Speak to those who think that any Catholic investigation of the Catholic Church is wrongheaded. Okay. Well, yeah, those are some really strong words that she used in that statement that just came out. And I would say that some of the people who have come to me are Catholics who love the Church and they're mad about the situation. And I think that they would probably be some of the the best people to do an investigation because their heart's in it because of their love for the church and of Jesus Christ. But, you know, someone said maybe people not from the same region who are Catholics should do an investigation of a different region or something like that. So I don't know how you would structure it, but to just dismiss that any Catholic doing the investigation wouldn't be a good person to do it. I'd say there's probably another side to that, that they might have more passion to do it because they want to see uh, their church purified and clean. Would you welcome an investigation by the state attorney general? Well, I would say this, you know, because I don't want to tell the attorney general how to do their job. But my understanding would be that before law enforcement does an investigation into whether or not a law has been broken, that there has to be probable cause that a law has been broken. And uh, I would say in the Archdiocese of Denver, it's troubling to hear. I don't know exactly the context of what the attorney general was talking about when she said the church has proven itself incapable of safeguarding the vulnerable because in the Archdiocese of Denver since 2002, which is kind of the watershed moment of there's a problem and we need to institute things to protect children. So it's kind of that turning point to say, well, what's happened since 2002? We have no new allegations of abuse of minors by a priest 
since 2002. You're saying in the Denver Archdiocese. In the, Dar- and in the Denver Archdiocese. That would tell me to say that this is an institution, right, that is responsible and reliable, that has actually done a great deal of work to safeguard the vulnerable, and our track record is kind of showing itself. So what is the probable cause for an investigation um, with the Pennsylvania Like one of the things that came out with that report. The grand jury's um, report. Yeah, grand jury report was to say – and this is one of the unfortunate parts about this. And first thing I want to say because whenever you talk about this report and say, oh, you don't care about the victims. That's the thing that upsets me the most is that so many people were victimized. You know, The initial reports are saying 1,000. I think that they've kind of gone back through that and it's actually about 680. But one is too many. One is too many. it's so sad that that has happened. And then for me as a priest, what's sad is to see that number, 301 priests. I'm like, man, 301 priests have done things, you know, that are some that are completely atrocious. That's bad. But when you get to the the numbers that I think that's upsetting to me is um, it's as though it's being treated as though these are all brand new revelations. And the truth is 85% of these were already reported. They were reported by the media. They were known from 2002, 2005, that time period. This is just a comprehensive review. Okay, I think a comprehensive review is good because then we can learn more about causes and different things that are happening. But this is not all new. What is the biggest change you made post-2002 that you think brought down the numbers? Well, I don't know that there's any one thing, but there's a number of things. And first is uh, the safe environment program. We have a problem in the world as humans. It's called like the bystander effect. You know, they'll say that someone whose car breaks down on a busy highway, everyone thinks, oh, someone else is going to get to it, right? Someone else is going to do it. And if you break down in the middle of nowhere, then someone will pull over and help you. So we have this problem where people see stuff, but they don't say anything about it. One of the things about our safe environment training is that Anyone who has any work with children, so clergy, staff members, volunteers, were given a thorough training that shows what are signs of grooming, what are signs of neglect, what are signs that abuse are happening, what they look like, interviews with people who have done abuse, you know, who are kind of telling what they used to do. And it's a tough topic, but it teaches people that. And then they're given, these are the means, this is what you should do if you suspect something to report. So it's essentially creating an environment where adults know what to look for, and they're creating a safe environment because they're reporting if they see something. You say grooming in this context. That's the idea of someone as an authority figure grooming a young person and manipulating them, taking advantage of them. Precisely. What is being done to prevent people who might be predatorial Mm -hmm. from entering the priesthood in the first place? Yeah. And this is what I would say is the reason why you see the decline after 1979 and in other places is because of just advances in psychology and in kind of the process when the church started to see there's problems here. Even though there was a lot of cases of them covering up, they said, we got to change the entrance requirements. And so by requiring a thorough psychological evaluation at entrance – uh, letters of recommendation and, um, you know, like a physical and a criminal background check and all these kinds of things. That's just the to get to become a seminarian, right? You have to go through an interview process after that. Once those things are all done, there's, you know, a continual kind of review process. 
and it's not short. You know, I tell people I went to seminary for eight short years, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's not a short process. It's like med school. Yeah. You're evaluated by formators, but also, honestly, the one that gets you the most is the peer evaluation. Before you become a deacon, which you become the last year, all your peers get to do an anonymous write-up on you. And you have to read it. And that sucks because there might be a guy that you, you know, had a, a disagreement with or uh, things like that. And, and that's taken into evaluation. And then a board from the seminary decides whether or not you would move on to orders and get ordained as a deacon. And so I would say that these things that are in place now are a lot better screening and that the guys who are becoming priests today are becoming priests because they actually know what it means. They love the church. They want to be an image of Jesus Christ in the world. And they don't have an ulterior motive of what they might be able to do. If a priest is accused, what are the steps that you take? Uh, what, accused of abuse of a minor? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, first of all, you to say, is it a credible claim? You know, and that would who, just who be— Who decides the, that? Well, I mean, most it would say that it seems like they say— this priest did this in this year, and if that priest wasn't even ordained yet, right? So if it's possible that that priest was at that church at that time, then what we would do, the first thing we do is remove that priest from ministry. Now, assuming innocence before, you know, proven guilty, but as I say, for the protection of any other potential victim, but also for the protection of, of that priest and his good name is say, we'll remove him from ministry so that a proper investigation can take place. Removed, not shifted to another church. Precisely. The, when, when someone's being investigated, they're never allowed to go do ministry in some other place. They would just, you know, kind of be, for lack of better terms, just staying at the home, but not going to the church. Now, that wasn't always the case, as we know, in, in history. But you're saying that that was an important change that came, I'm guessing, by 2002. Yeah, I mean, for sure, with everyone by 2002, I think the great thing about that I would be able to say to the people of the Archdiocese of Denver, the history that I've learned is that when Archbishop uh, Stafford came, he actually instituted rules that later became the standard, but he instituted them really early, starting as early as 1991 with criminal background checks and reporting to law enforcement, and then actually coming up with a response team that would interview victims to help them, but also to investigate the situations as early as 1995. At what point would you involve law enforcement? Well, if there's an accusation that uh, abuse of a minor has taken place, law enforcement should be involved within 24 hours. I see. So from the earliest stages of that investigation. Precisely. That's and, our. That's the standard for Colorado mandatory reporters, which mm. we all as priests are. Who would conduct the investigation? Well, so it would be one, law enforcement, if it's an active, you know, if we're looking at a criminal situation, law enforcement would do it. But we And we would be trying to cooperate with law enforcement. I think we have a good track record of cooperation with law enforcement. I want to read one line from the Archbishop's letter supporting the idea of an independent investigation. Archbishop Aquila says, It is Jesus who will see us through this time of trial and purification. Mm -hmm. What do you take that to mean? I think that, you know, the church, we believe the church is founded by Jesus Christ. And as an institution, it is the thing that's going to get us to heaven, essentially, right? But it's run by imperfect people. And we know throughout the history of the church that sometimes there is egregious sin, you know, committed by people who are in positions of authority. And clearly what's happening is, and we see this even from what has been revealed about Archbishop McCarrick, you know, and about these priests who come out in these reports, is that 
yeah, there's some bad stuff going on in the church and there's a need for a purification. And so it's to say that because people in authority have done something wrong, does that suddenly make uh, the salvation of Jesus Christ on the cross no longer valid? No, it it's still valid. And that's the standard. But we need to be purified of, you know, the sins that are being committed by some of the people in hierarchy. What would you say to someone listening who might have been abused in the church and who has not come forward? Mm. Maybe they're five-year-old allegations. Maybe they're 25-year-old allegations. Well, the first thing I would say is that I'm sorry, you know, because as a priest, it hurts me to know that someone might have been abused by a priest. In a real way, it does. So I would say sorry. And then I would say to them, the healing you need is going to be on the other side of dealing with this. And they might not have come forward because they know that it's going to stir stuff up and it's going to be difficult. But what I know is the most important things we've ever accomplished in our lives often come on the other side of a struggle. And so I would say, what is the support you need to go through this, to bring it up? Because if someone's in active ministry that abused them, I'd say, you got you to gotta come out because I don't want other people to get hurt. But if the person's even dead, right, or, or whatever, I'd say, the healing you need is going to be working through this. And I would want to help them. And so any way I could help them and give them if they need anonymity, you know, sometimes people think, oh, you know, people want to just be out there and in the news. I think some people are really hurt. And they said, this is a deep wound. And I don't want everyone in my life to know that I was abused. And so I want to meet someone where they're at and give them all the resources they can for healing. Because the truth is, it's it hurts me to hear about cover-ups and people, you know, covering their butts and things like that. My goal is anytime we get this is, okay, how are we going to make sure we take care of the victim? How are we going to bring a priest to justice if he's alive, if he's in active ministry or whatever? But first and foremost, taking care of the victims. Now, SNAP makes a recommendation that the church stop fighting changes to the statute of limitations when it comes to these types of allegations. Yeah. Speak to that. I, You know, if, if people that I know in law enforcement, they're going to tell you that um, there's reasons why statute of limitations exist. Memories fail. Remembering a, a crime from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the details, you know, who is involved, are people even still alive, a lot of things like that to say that that is – it's difficult to remove statute of limitations and then assume that you're going to get a just process. But isn't it also true, just based on what you told us, that a lot of these experiences simmer for years, decades beyond perhaps statutes of limitations before someone feels comfortable speaking? Yeah, that is true. But I would say – and speaking for the Archdiocese of Denver and other dioceses that I've heard, you know, they're, that they have the same concern I do is that if the concern is helping the victims – I would say the archdiocese, regardless of statute of limitations for civil lawsuits or criminal, has said, anyone who's been abused, come to us. We'll work with you. We want to help you in whatever way we can. But without the force, perhaps, of the law? Well, yeah. I mean, so if you're, it's different if we're talking about criminal statute of limitations or civil. I think when people say statute of limitations, it's usually around civil. And so I think that the idea is plaintiff's attorneys suing the church for negligence and getting huge settlements. And I think that that's made a lot of plaintiff's attorneys rich, but I don't know if that's made a lot of victims whole again. So what I would tell anyone who says that they, and if it was beyond statute of limitations and they live in Colorado and it was a priest in Colorado who, that they have an allegation of abuse, 
come forward, let us know. We'll, we'll still report it to the police. The police don't throw it out. They can't prosecute for, you know, a, a criminal offense, but they'll still help with the investigation. We'll know, but we want to make the person whole. But as for changing the statute of limitations, you think that that might result in injustice? Yeah, in some cases, yeah. I mean, you if you look at the situation where it happens in other places, I don't think that the wholeness of people who have been abused has been the ultimate outcome there. Why do you think this happens? Have you given thought to to why? To why someone abuses? Mm-hmm. I think, well, and, and so I don't have enough evidence from before what we might call the sexual revolution, but I think that we're on a, uh, a slippery slope of of our sexuality uh, and that it's gone away from something that is procreative and in a, um, in a union between a husband and wife. And it's become uh, much more just kind of dispersed and almost that the things are, you know, just acceptable. And I think that our, in our human sexuality, um, yeah, I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. I think, I think that, uh, that has opened the doors for, for things that weren't, acceptable in the past. But you know, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist or behavioralist or, or things like that. So I don't know if I have a good idea of what the cause might be. I mean, do I hear you blaming homosexuality for this? No. No, I think that the reports show that many of the acts were male priests with postpubescent male victims. And that shows that that act itself is a is a predatory homosexual act in itself. But I don't think that this is I'm, I, that I've said that this is a, a homosexual problem. I, I think it's a human sexuality problem. Do you think it has anything to do with celibacy and whether meeting that standard is is uh, not possible for some, and that it results in I don't know a kind of aberrant sexuality? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I read someone said, you know, the church has to see that finally it's time to get rid of celibacy. And what's hard is even, and so maybe you've heard this term, the John Jay Report, which was an extensive report that looked at, you know, like 10,000 cases of abuse between 1950 and 2002. And they tried to get to all the details and statistics behind it to understand better. And um, most of the cases average back in the 70s. Now, it doesn't say that there's not any newer ones, but there's kind of a hot spot around 1979 and you go out from there and then they get less on each side. So if priests who were living in this era were abusing more frequently than others, but in the last 20 years, Catholic priests are not being found to abuse, then it seems like a weird solution to say that Currently, you have guys who understand celibacy, who live it, who would say it's fruitful and that it's part of what it means to be a Catholic priest, that the solution is to get rid of celibacy because it's a thing that was causing a problem 30 years ago. It doesn't seem honest reaction. Should the Pope keep his job? Yeah, so that's a big question. You're talking about the allegations that were raised by Archbishop Vigano. Yeah, yeah and he basically, it's unprecedented, said... I call for the Pope to resign. And I'll say that the Archbishop here in Denver has said that he places a lot of faith in Vigano. Yeah, I mean, this guy's not a hack, right? So he was the apostolic nuncio 
for the United States. He's basically the lead diplomat for the Pope for the entire United States. At the Holy See. Yeah. yeah. And so he's saying that he knows that these things happened and they're pretty powerful uh, accusations. So I think that it would be bold to ask if, you know, if I think that the Pope should resign. I think that we deserve answers that are conclusive and based on evidence to the accusations that have been brought up. I'm disheartened when people say, oh, this guy can be disregarded. He was the nuncio of the United States. Don't sweep him aside. Father Dolan says, any of this rattled your own faith at points? It is, it is, is tough. I would say it hasn't rattled my faith in Jesus Christ or in the church or in the truth of what um, my vocation is supposed to be. But what it does is you say, man, for so long, you, you always think, you know, the bishops are, are the great pillars of the church to help lead us. And you realize they can be as sinful as I can be or any other person. And unfortunately, they can be deceitful too. So I think that it's kind of caused some people to just say, man, no one is uh, above suspicion. That doesn't mean that we should just assume that, you know, anyone has done something wrong. Like I said, we have to have probable cause that someone's done something wrong before we investigate them. But it's a tough reality. It's a tough pill to swallow. And it's it's changed my prayer a little bit because yeah, I need, I need a little bit more hope and uh, enthusiasm these days. Thanks for being with us. You bet. God bless you. Father Randy Dollins is Vicar General for the Archdiocese of Denver. Our coverage continues tomorrow when we sit down with two Colorado members of SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. They've called for independent investigations in every state with the idea that everybody will know the truth is what I'm looking for, the truth of what went on, what transpired, so that people can make their own judgment, not the judgment that may be tainted by individuals, but the truth of the matter of what actually went on. That's tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This will be a nerve-wracking election for school districts. They're pinning their hopes on a statewide ballot measure to raise money for education. Amendment 73 would bring in more than a billion and a half dollars. Now, at the same time, many districts are in a quandary right now about whether to also push for a local tax increase in case Amendment 73 fails. CPR's Jenny Brundine is here to provide some perspective. Hi, Jenny. Hello, Ryan. Talk about this moment. It's a fraught one. Yes, this is the moment I can guarantee 178 school districts have been waiting for for a long time. A statewide ballot measure that would raise $1.6 billion for schools. But first, I'm going to give a little bit of context. So right now, Colorado spends about $2,800 less per student than the national average. Public schools here are down more than $7 billion, that's with a B, dollars in state funding since the recession. So what does that mean? That's because of a mechanism lawmakers created that allowed cutting school funding each year in order to prop up the rest of the state budget. So essentially, it's an IOU to schools, and this debt has had a profound effect on school districts. What kind of an effect? 
The list is long, and according to school districts, uh, the start with salaries, they're well below the national average, and that's given rise to a teacher shortage. About 60% of schools, districts are on a four-day week. Academic programs have had to be cut, and they never came back. Many districts have a bus driver shortage, and the buses that are around are pretty ancient. Districts report leaky ceilings, aging boilers, outdated textbooks, and technology. And here's a big thing that's uh, going unmet, a big need. The student demographic is changing, and districts are reporting a lot more kids with mental health problems, and there aren't enough uh, social workers or psychologists. Interesting. So tell us about Amendment 73, how it would address some of the problems you laid out there. This is a constitutional amendment that will be on the November ballot, and it would give each school district millions more dollars. So it would raise income taxes among Coloradans who make more than 150000 a year and increase the corporate tax rate. So 92% of filers would see no change in their taxes. Um, And while the corporate tax rate would go up, the measure, this is a part that's not really talked about much, drops and freezes residential property and business property tax rates that are levied by school districts. So the supporters argue that's a boost to farmers, ranchers, homeowners, and small business owners. School districts are backing that larger idea, and some of them were also recently announced that they're putting their own local tax and bond measures on the ballot to show up alongside Amendment 73. That's right. So some big districts in the metro area, and I'll name a few of those, Jefferson County, Aurora, Westminster, Thompson, and Douglas County, they've just announced their own measures that would hike property taxes locally if passed. Well, explain this to us. I mean, give us a sense of why they're asking for more money locally, even as 73 is on the ballot. Yeah. They're very aware that voters have rejected the last two statewide ballot measures for money. So one reason is they're not going to take any chances in case it doesn't pass. So they want to have their own local measure there. The other reason is some districts say even if 73 passes, they'll still be underfunded. In Jefferson and Douglas County, principals uh, at a recent board meeting testified about not being able to recruit and attract teachers. Here's uh, Principal Colleen Owens. She's testifying to the Jeffco board on the vote to put the local measure on the ballot. At Green Mountain High School, I still have an English and a math position vacant. I have substitutes in the classrooms. I am trying everything I can to hire. I am not getting good candidates. And the candidates I am getting, first thing they ask me is, how much does it pay? And I've had two candidates shut me down because we aren't paying what we need to. At the same meeting, teachers, cafeteria workers, and others testified that they're exhausted from working multiple jobs to make ends meet. And they kept saying students deserve better. Many talked about aging equipment. For example, I found this interesting. There's one high school that has a new performance art learning pathway, but the auditorium speakers date back to 1961. Uh, Others spoke about buildings overdue for repairs. And uh, here's Principal Owens again talking about that. The floods this summer, we had to redo drywall. We found asbestos. We had holes in our roof. We have mice all over our building. And we are in desperate need of some support. Oh, the, the mice would terrify me. Okay. Yes. And even students testified. Uh, Joey Quintana, he's a junior at Thunder Ridge High in Douglas County. He talked about how many of students' favorite teachers have gone on to other districts for better pay. He's been in the district since pre-kindergarten, and he's noticed fewer class choices and bigger class sizes. Sitting in a class with 30 or more students makes it hard for many students, including me, to get one-on-one time with my teacher to be able to fully comprehend a subject that I may be struggling with. 
Now, despite those woes, aren't districts nervous about having more than one request for money on the ballot, Jenny? Yes, they are really nervous about voters being confused. <laughs> Jeffco resident Frank Vandelay asked board members to hold off on this local ask. Too many requests for tax increases will result in a lot of voters just being confused and saying, ah, I'm just going to vote no on all of them. Please keep your eye on the prize. But uh, both Jeffco and Dugco voted to put the local measures on the ballot. Uh, Jeffco raises locally about half, I think, what Denver raises per pupil from local property taxes, right? That's right. And Douglas County raises less than a quarter. So what teachers are paid in Jeffco will continue to lag. Jeffco teacher Aaron Murphy explains. We'll still be losing teachers to Denver, to Adams, to Littleton, to Boulder. Jefferson County's board unanimously decided to put the local measures on the ballot. But we have other districts in rural Colorado. They're putting all their eggs in the Amendment 73 basket. That is to say, no local measure. Help us understand their thinking. Yeah, and they're often in a bit more of a financial crisis. Take Montezuma-Cortez way down in southwestern corner of the state. We did a story last year looking at teacher pay. Starts at around $29,995. Average salary is around 37000 Teachers could make 7000 more by moving just one district over. So uh, they really want to raise teacher pay. But last year, voters uh, turned down a ballot measure that would have raised pay. And the board this year decided not to run the measure because the drought has brought a lot of economic hardship. Oh. And they felt it was just too much for voters uh, to, to consider this. So they were banking on Amendment 73 passing. Are any other districts taking a different approach? Telluride, for example, is considering trying to explain to voters that the local property tax request won't go forward if Amendment 73 passes. If 73 doesn't pass, the local measure would go into effect if it passes. I see. So they've done either or. And either or, yes. And Garfield County on the Western Slope is trying to do the same thing. But Telluride superintendent told me that in a small resort town, they have to be mindful that there are a lot of other local measures that could be on the ballot that need uh, support for emergency services, fire, medical needs, things like that. Jenny, thanks for this perspective. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine on a debate in school districts about funding and if they should ask for local help in addition to a statewide tax measure. And we'll be right back with a former Denver Post reporter who covered the war in Afghanistan and has now written a novel partially set there. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The anniversary of the 9-11 attacks is just around the corner. Soon after those attacks, reporter Gwen Florio headed to Afghanistan with the Denver Post. Now she's written a novel. Silent Hearts tells the story of a Pakistani woman and an American woman working together in Kabul as U.S. bombs rain down and foreign aid workers struggle to understand a culture they know very little about. Gwen Florio was recently named Writer of the Year by Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. And Gwen, welcome to the show. Hi. You reported for the Denver Post in Pakistan and Afghanistan immediately after the 2001 terror attacks. And I think you went back a year later. What compelled you to write a novel, though? Boy, it was one thing. First of all, I had been writing fiction for a number of years, um, 
And I just thought it would make a wonderful subject for a novel because it was one thing I had read extensively, you know, even before the attacks about Afghanistan, about the situation of women under the Taliban. But to go there and see its results in person and to hear about it from women themselves was another experience entirely. It really brought it home to me just how horrible it was. And I couldn't imagine how something like that could happen in this day and age, how you could take a country so far back and take 50% of the population and put them under just such terrible conditions. When you say just such terrible conditions, give us examples of what you saw that stuck with you. Sure. Um, I saw women who were going back to university. You know, the the Taliban fled and, and we as journalists came in. And women were going back to university for the first time in five years. They'd had to sit home, sit inside. Women and girls were not allowed to go to school or be educated under the Taliban. And I just remember this one woman saying how incredibly resentful she had been every day for five years when her brother got up and went off to university and she just had to sit home and do nothing. Uh, That's a, a mild example. Another woman who one day her burqa flew open And her ankle was exposed and men came and beat her because that was an unacceptable violation. And again, those are some of the milder things that happened. My goodness. In that environment, how did they... How did they survive? I don't mean literally, but sort of mentally day to day. You know, that's a good question on both counts, both literally and mentally. Uh Um, One of the things, and and I wanted to show that in this book, that impressed me was the incredible emotional toughness of these women. You know, they, some women, held classes in secret. You keep going because you've got kids, and what are you going to do? You just, you've got to get up every morning and go on about. Yeah, exactly. And they were warm, and they were gracious, and they were accepting of this bizarre stranger in their midst, asking them lots of questions. And they were humorous. And I just wanted to say, even in the worst of times, life goes on. They were humorous. They were. I don't feel like you you necessarily hear much about Afghan humor. You know, um, they teased me a lot about, we we would sit down and talk. I, I was also a single mom. I was talking to a lot of widows and we would compare notes. You know, you come home from work or from whatever. I I was lucky enough to talk to women who were among the very few who were allowed to work in a UN bakery. And they say, when you come home, you're really tired. Your kids are bugging you and they want dinner and all you want to do is take a rest. And they would sort of laugh about that, this sort of common bond we had. And I thought, oh, my God, my situation is 300,000 times easier than yours. But but they felt like we had this in common. A UN bakery was one yeah. of the few places women were allowed to work. Mm-hmm. They uh, Women were not allowed to work at all, and which is if you had a family, you were okay. But if you were widowed, then you were really in tough shape. You could either beg or be a prostitute. And the UN finally worked out this deal where they created these bakeries where widows could work And I forget what the numbers were. There were maybe a few hundred women working among the many thousands and thousands of widows. Um, And I went to one where a U.S. bomb had gone astray and landed on a bakery. That was one of these very few places that provided sustenance for these women and destroyed it. So there went their livelihood. Under attack at at all moments. Mm -hmm. So the two main characters in this book, Silent Hearts... Uh, are a Pakistani woman, Farida, and an American woman named Leave. Mm-hmm. 
Why don't we start with Farida? She's been married off to a man very much against her will, a man named Ghul. Mm-hmm. When she meets him, he and his family are in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. But after the terror attacks, because the, the book begins to ramp up just before the attacks, mm-hmm. they move to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And of course, she goes with, sure. with her new husband. Farida is something of a rebel. Mm-hmm. Tell me about her. So Farida is an educated woman. She and her family lived in London for a time. So she's been abroad. She speaks several languages. And she likes those freedoms she's found. And suddenly, she is dropped into the midst of this incredibly repressive society. That doesn't value education. Not even a little bit. It's seen as a liability. And so she has to sort of negotiate that. And she's married to this complete stranger who kind of buys into this. I mean, that's all he knows. And he's actually illiterate. It's fascinating because she can read and he Mm -hmm. can't. And he is, you know, I I said he was illiterate. He's probably pretty close. Uh, One of the saddest things is that because of all, you know, Afghanistan's been at war for, I don't know, three decades now, maybe more. So education has been disrupted for boys as well as girls. So it is not unusual for people across the board not to be able to read or write. You write so vividly about the first time Farida has to don a, a burqa, mm-hmm. how confining it feels mm-hmm. for her, how hard it is to see out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, what I love about your writing is how it is at the same time vivid but concise. Yeah. You accomplish so much in such short bursts, and I wonder if that's from your newspaper days. Almost certainly. Uh-huh. I started off as a wire service writer. So uh, one of the problems I have when I moved from the AP to newspapers was I had to actually write longer. And so I think that has always lingered. Yeah. You're not going to get incredibly flowery. That's just never Probably going to be not. who you are. Yeah. Uh, who we are speaking with is Gwen Florio, formerly of the Denver Post. She covered uh, the war's Uh, in Afghanistan, also Iraq, I think, for the Denver Post. Her new novel is called Silent Hearts. It is set partially in Pakistan, mostly in Afghanistan. And the American woman that Farida becomes friends with is Leave. She and her husband, Martin, are recruited after 9-11 to work for a women's rights organization. Tell us just a a bit about Leave's backstory before she gets to Afghanistan. Sure. Leave is a researcher at a small college outside Philadelphia where her husband is a professor, and she's always sort of been in his shadow. And I think the interesting thing that happens to her, she she does not want to go to Kabul, except that um, she really doesn't have much choice if she wants to be with her husband. He's going. He's made it clear that he's going. This is a big career leap for him. He's a subject matter expert in Afghanistan. Exactly. And that's really sought after after the 9-11 mm-hmm. attacks. Right. So, But when she gets over there, what she finds is that she has real skills as an interviewer in talking to women. She has more access to women than he has. And she realizes, I'm good at this. And she is oddly empowered by this move that she hadn't wanted to make. She's good at interviewing, and she goes to Kabul. Gosh, it sounds like you, (laughs) Gwen Florio. Is leave you? I hope not. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. But I did put, you know, I drew on my own experiences for sure. I wanted someone who... um, who had a reason to go out and talk to women, which is what I did a lot of. And it gave me, um, again, I could 
I could write with some authority about situations I had actually seen, so I wasn't totally winging it. You know, one thing, I'm writing about a completely different culture, so I want to get it right. And again, I wanted to be sure um, when I described some of these things that I had seen them, that, that I went back and researched what I had seen uh, to make sure I wasn't stumbling somewhere. Or misremembering. Right. Memory can be fuzzy. Right. Especially, I imagine, in a war zone. My mm-hmm. goodness. Tell me about how you got women to open up when you were there. Um, were you seen as an outsider, and was that in your favor? Did that work against you? You know, I was so obviously an outsider. I don't think I could have been more different. But uh, two things worked in my favor. One, being a woman, so I could go into people's homes, which is um, not something often accorded male journalists. You know, to go in and, and talk to the women of the household is a, a big no-no. Um, the other thing, I think, is I was interested in them. And here were these women who were kind of shut off from the world, and they get to talk about themselves. And I truly wanted to hear what they had to say. And they truly wanted to, I, they came across as wanting to um, help me understand their lives. And the other thing is, as a culture, it is a, a very welcoming and hospitable culture in ways that always surprise me in ways that ours is not. You know, someone comes to your door and you invite them in and you give them tea. They might be not someone you particularly like, but that is a an abiding principle. And I found that charming. Did you cover when you were there? Did I cover? Uh, did you wear some sort of Oh, coverage? yes, um, I did. I wore a headscarf all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on the situation... You know, I either had it completely covering my hair and sometimes wrapped across my nose and mouth or just kind of around my shoulders. Again, in a home relaxed with women, I could let it drop outside on the street. Boy, I wanted to be covered up. So you have these two pairs of characters in this novel, Silent Hearts, Gwen Florio. You have mm-hmm. Farida and and Ghoul, and you have Leave and Martin. And though they come from very different places, very different backgrounds, I think the theme of subordination Mm -hmm. comes up in both couples. Sure. Whether one is subordinate to the other. Right. They manifest in different ways, of course. But I I wonder if if that theme was intentional. It was. One thing I wanted to do, you know, it was so obvious the way women were subordinate, uh, the Afghani women. But I wanted to find out how an American man might change if he were dropped into a culture you know, a sort of liberal American man were dropped into a culture where it was permissible and even encouraged to mistreat women, to keep them subordinate, how that might work on him. Might he object to it or might he think, huh, never thought about this. This is not so bad. Gosh, that's fascinating. (laughs) How much of this is, it's not quite nature versus nurture, but Mm -hmm. how much of it is about his surroundings and what's appropriate or not in how you treat women. Have you been back to Afghanistan? I went back in 2002 for the anniversary, but not since. Uh huh. It's interesting, Martin, the professor in this book, I think he declares really soon after the attacks that Afghanistan is likely involved. You know, mm-hmm. he knows that very quickly, very mm-hmm. clearly. 
And I think he declares that if the United States were to go into Afghanistan, it would fall quickly and the conflict would be over. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to. That was certainly (laughs) a, um, I think, a belief in in certain elements of the government at the time. We'll just sweep in there. But no one had ever swept into Afghanistan and done well. No one has ever conquered. And, you know, over and over again, vastly superior armies have been defeated. And it's like, do you never learn? Yeah. And here we Here we still are. With right? this continuing. Are you surprised that the, the war continues? No, not remotely. And I don't know what the answer is. I feel terrible. I wish there were a way to help people there and change their lives. And again, especially the women there. And I, I, if I knew what the answer was, I would be far better paid. What do you hope people get out of reading the book? Um, I hope they have some deeper understanding of of all the shades of gray in Afghanistan, that it's not just black and white, that women can can affect some change there against incredible odds. Um, I guess I hope they feel an interest for and compassion for the place, that it's not just all terrorist, you know, raging against the United States. It's people who want very much to, to live their lives. Uh, over and over again, people said... Um, I just want to live in peace and security, and I would like that for them. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Gwen Florio's novel is Silent Hearts. She's a former Denver Post reporter. She's now city editor of the Missoulian newspaper in Montana. Florio was recently named Writer of the Year by Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. 1876, that's when Colorado became a state, and it's when the Hill family began farming in the tiny Colorado town of Kaplan along the southern border. At this year's state fair, the Hill farm was recognized with one of this year's Centennial Awards. It's given to farms and ranches that have been in the same family for a century or more, recognizing their contributions to Western history and Colorado's agricultural legacy. Passed down from generation to generation, this farm is now in the hands of Pete V. Hill Jr. Years ago, my grandpa planted a cauliflower, a lettuce, and when I was a little boy, I remember that. When my dad acquired that place in the 50s, he planted garden peas and, and beans. A lot of garden peas, you know. I remember running into there, and I loved that garden peas. <laughs> and then when I bought it, I didn't go into that. It's a lot of work, you know, the garden peas and the beans. Uh, I went back into grain and alfalfa, and that's what I've been doing, grain and alfalfa and, and oats, you know. It's smack in the middle of harvest right now for them. Hill was actually working on his farm when we spoke by phone. At first, he was hesitant to take the farm over. But dad was having hard times in the 60s, and he was going to let it go. And Mr. Downing, a banker, he called me, and, and we talked about that. Uh, shall we keep the farm or not? The banker told me he was a really nice gentleman. I wish it would stay in the family. It's been in there for a long time, you know. I hate for that place to go to other people, you know. And I told him to give me a day or two. Let me think about it, you know. And so I, I thought about it for a couple of days, and then I uh, I called him back. I told him I would. I'm going to try it. The Hills have struggled over the decades with water. There's rarely enough to go around for Colorado farmers, and this year was no exception. Uh, this year, the, all the rivers went dry. What, what can we do, Mother Nature, you know? But there's no water. The creeks went dry this year. I've never seen a year this dry, you know? 
But despite the challenges Vigil has faced, he started making good money in the 1980s when he became the primary hay provider for Kevin Costner and Kevin Klein's film Silverado. You're wearing my hat. What else you got that's mine? Now, I don't want to kill you and you don't want to be dead. You can't be that good. And Silverado used a lot of hay. They were feeding horses and cows. They brought 300 cows out of Texas. They brought a lot, and they said, you got a whole lot of hay peepics. We got to fatten them up for the movie. They're too skinny, and I remember that. And, yeah, they were skinny. And within three months, man, we got them looking in pretty good shape, and they started filming. Now, when it's time for Vigil to retire, he's confident the farm will stay in the family. I have a couple of grandkids that seem like they're into it. There's one that went to school went to college and studied for diesel and gas mechanic. He came back and he told me he didn't want to be a mechanic. He wanted to see if I could afford him and he wanted to farm with me. All award recipients were honored at an event at this year's Colorado State Fair in Pueblo. V. Hill Farms, Kaplan, Conejos County. Pete V. Hill Jr. continues to improve the farm every year. With his grandchildren, he continues his family's tradition of farming and working hard to learn an honest living. Congratulations. I really loved it. It was great. I'll never see that again. <laughs> Pete Vigil Jr., one of the recipients of this year's Centennial Farms and Ranches Award. His family began farming in 1876 in Kaplan, Colorado. I'll confess that I hadn't heard of Kaplan until now. 1876, of course, is the same year Colorado became a state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.